So we're going to be talking about Daniel's 490-year prophecy, uh, often referred to as Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, because that's the way it's called in the King James and the New King James. Uh, some uh, more modern translations will refer to it as the 77s, using the word seven instead of week, and I'll explain why in just a moment. But as we begin, let me give you a couple quick reminders. Uh, next week, we're going to do another Q&A. So it'll be a month since our last one. And I really enjoyed that, got a lot of great feedback, and it really helps me. I love that type of interaction. So be thinking about your questions and uh, comments and uh, anything we have talked about so far, or anything related to the end times. Uh, we want to uh, talk about it. If you're watching this on video or listening to the podcast, feel free to email me uh, with any types of questions, and I'll try to work those in and cover them uh, as well. So that's next week. And then also want to remind you about our website. I know YouTube is really playing some funny stuff with me. I've had a lot of people email me with uh, telling me that they've run into problems trying to find stuff or even trying to subscribe to our channel. Uh, so like a lot of conservative uh, Christian Bible teachers and speakers uh, these days, uh, just go to our website. Use that as our main platform. That's where you can find every video in this series, every one from our Culture Shock, from our Hebrew study on Sunday mornings, um, from our Wednesday midweek Bible study, and even stuff like the old Spirit of the Antichrist that I did last fall, all right there uh, on the homepage. Uh, if you want to get the book that corresponds to this study that we're doing right now, uh, and you're not here, if you're here, they're at the back on a table, but if you're not, if you're watching this or listening to this, again, just go to our website, click on the store, and uh, you can find What Lies Ahead, a biblical overview of the end times, and uh, use the coupon code WLA, and that'll get you 25% off. Uh, so uh, we've talked a lot about, you know, uh, Daniel in the last several weeks. We introduced Daniel. We went through some of the original uh, context. We uh, talked about how Daniel really is divided into two parts. And maybe if I put the chart up, it'll give you a little bit better idea. This is the high-level overview of Daniel, the book of Daniel. Uh, but you'll notice that you know about half of it is historical and relates to God's program uh, for the world and in the times of the Gentiles, we call it. Uh, but then the last half is really dealing prophetically with Israel and God's plan for Israel. And remember, we looked last week at uh, Daniel's dream, that vision of the beasts that uh, God revealed to Daniel and showed uh, how ultimately Israel is going to uh, come out on top when the Messiah comes back and takes the throne. So I've been calling these Daniel's explosive prophecies. And just to kind of review Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, they parallel each other perfectly, talking about the Babylonian Empire um, with that beast in Daniel's uh, vision in chapter 7 and the, the statue's head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's vision. And then the Medo-Persian Empire, all of these things happened historically precisely as God revealed in Daniel, uh, which was in, the, uh, in Daniel 2, the statue's uh, midsection of uh, silver, and in Daniel's vision, the bear, or something like a bear. Uh, and then the Greek Empire followed with the bronze part of the statue, and then um, that leopard-like uh, beast with uh, wings. And then the big one was the Roman Empire, and subsequently the revived Roman Empire, symbolized by the iron legs and then the iron and clay mixed feet, referring to the future revival of that same 
empire. So four empires, but all pointing toward a culmination in the end times. And in the prophecy that we're going to get to today, we're going to see uh, the exact timing of when this will all uh, come about. So the question on Daniel's mind in the book of Daniel is, after 70 years of captivity, can God be trusted? What you know, he, he, he mentioned that we would be, we speaking as if I were with Daniel and the uh, uh, captives, uh, that we would be in captivity for 70 years, but what about the promised kingdom? Remember, the timetable here is roughly the 5th century B.C. And going all the way back, and this is going to stretch your memory, but to the early messages in this series, uh, again, this is part 12, so you go back to 1, 2, 3. We talked about the kingdom promise. We talked about how it was alluded to way back at the beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 3. But then let's... Uh, Go to, say, Abraham 2,000 years before Christ with the Abrahamic promise uh, and where the, he would have land, seed, and blessing, and ultimately uh, the, the, the seed of David would rule the world. And then we could go 1,000 years before Christ to the time of King David when the Davidic covenant was promised, and God said that someone from your line, David, would take the throne and rule forever and ever. And we see multiple reiterations of this kingdom promise uh, throughout the Old Testament. We see it alluded to many times again in the New Testament, but from Daniel's perspective, they've been waiting for this kingdom. And the Bible, of course, tells the story of God's ultimate culmination in the kingdom. It goes from creation to fall to redemption and to all things being made new in the kingdom someday. So here you are, you're a Jew in captivity in Babylon, and uh, you know that you were going to suffer for 70 years, but uh, what comes next? And that was really what was on uh, Daniel's mind. We might ask the same question today. That's why I love Daniel, because it's in addition to giving us the really the nuts and bolts of God's prophetic program, it has a great application for us personally, because we too are still waiting, aren't we? We too still long for the kingdom. We, uh, Paul tells us in, in uh uh, Romans chapter 8, that all of creation indeed is groaning, ready to be made new, waiting for this new uh, redemption, if you will. Uh, so if we look at uh, the plan of the ages, we've been waiting a lot longer than 70 years, haven't we? Uh, because uh, you can see uh, number four on there, the, the Abrahamic promise, and then the time of the law in the Exodus there with Moses when God revealed the law on Mount Sinai. And then uh, the church age, uh, so here we are 2,000 years later from the establishment of the church in Acts chapter 2 in 33 AD, still no kingdom, right? Uh, so we're, we're living in what the Bible calls the last days, uh, the, meaning the last age before the kingdom. And we might wonder the same thing. Can God be trusted after 2,000 years of waiting? Can God be trusted? And this prophecy of Daniel really answers that with a resounding yes. Be patient. God's in control. God's marked this out exactly according to his plan. So the overview here of the end times that we've looked at a lot, uh, you see the church on the far left there, the rapture, which puts an end to the church age and starts the clock ticking on the end times. And then we put some high-level summary of some of the events on here, such as the unveiling of the Antichrist, uh, the establishment of the tribulation with the signing of the peace treaty, which is what we're looking at today in Daniel 9.27. 
uh, the midpoint of the tribulation, the abomination of desolation, which Daniel also talks about. Uh, the return of Christ, we'll fast forward to that at the end of the seven years, and then soon thereafter the establishment uh, official kickoff party, if you will, of the Messianic kingdom with the first thousand years being the millennium and then the eternal state. So uh, what we're going to be looking at today deals primarily with this 70th week, it's called, or this one seven-year period. Now, obviously, this chart is not drawn to scale because we're dealing with 2,000 years from the cross to today, let's just say. Um, and then, you know, we've got a thousand-year millennial reign and then eternity. Uh, that's why the, the timeline at the bottom just ends with an arrow because it goes on in perpetuity. But uh, the seven years makes up the bulk of the chart because that's what we have the most information about. We have some information about the millennial phase of the kingdom, particularly from the Old Testament, and we're going to get to that in this series. Obviously, we, we know a lot about the return of Christ and some of those things, but the book of Revelation and the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, uh, Mark 13 and, and Luke 21, deal with this seven-year period, and it all goes back to Daniel and what we call the 70th week. Uh, or the tribulation period, or the day of the Lord's wrath, or the time of Jacob's trouble, and so forth. So let's pick it up with verse uh, 24. Uh, Daniel says, Daniel 9:24 says, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city, so clearly talking about Israel now, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make a reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and the prophecy because it's done, it's over, and to anoint the most holy. So all of that is just a very flowery, prophetic way to talk about the consummation of the age, the time when Christ comes back and the kingdom age is finally inaugurated at long last. And the most holy one is anointed. So it's this word weeks. Now, of course, I'm looking at the New King James here, if you have a, a different version, it may say 77s, uh, because that, Greek, that, uh, that word weeks is the Hebrew word shabua, shabua, and uh, that's kind of a fun word to say, say shabua, shabua, yeah, there you go, uh, so it's used 20 times in the Hebrew Old Testament, and it's always translated weeks, or again in some modern translation, sevens. And that's because that's what the term means. It means a period of seven consecutive days or seven consecutive years. So let me give you some examples. We see Shabua used in Genesis 29 in the context of Jacob and Leah and Rachel. Remember when Jacob had to work for Laban for another seven years? He had to work for Laban for a Shabua in order to get what he thought was Rachel turned out to be Leah. Then he had to work for another Shabuah, right, to get uh, Rachel. So that's seven years. Um, there are a few places where sometimes it's referred to as seven, or re refers to seven days, uh, and particularly in the Levitical passages with the law and certain sacrificial uh, rituals and so forth. But in this context, we know Daniel was thinking in terms of years. Uh, look back at. I don't have it on the screen, but look back at verses 1 and 2 of this same chapter, Daniel 9, and you'll see what I'm talking about. So Daniel 9, verse 1, 
In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So basically Daniel is sort of looking at his calendar. He's realizing it's getting close to the end of the 70 years. And he asks, what comes next? What's next in your plan for your people, God? And he prays. Remember, Daniel was a man of prayer. We've talked about that. And uh, he called his friends to pray in that when Nebuchadnezzar couldn't remember his dream or claimed he couldn't remember his dream. And so it was obvious that Daniel was thinking in terms of years. And as we're going to see in a moment, it works out perfectly from start to finish, understanding this as 70 Shabuas, meaning 77-year periods. So 70 weeks are determined for your people. So a week is seven years. So if we do a little math here, 70 times 7 is 490 years. And so uh, what we see is a 490-year plan that God, through Daniel, reveals not the 70 years that he'd already revealed, but the next 490 years. 490 years are determined for your people, Israel. And so God reveals this next phase that will culminate in the ushering in of the kingdom. So you look at this and you say, wow, if you're uh, a Jew, you're thinking, okay, we're getting close. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm sorry that I'm not going to get to see it in my day, but at least my descendants will see it. And now we have a timetable. We know uh, when it's going to uh, come to pass. But the whole thing will culminate with, with everlasting righteousness when the Messiah comes and the kingdom is inaugurated. So uh, what I want to do is walk through these next three verses, and I want to point out the time markers, because this prophecy is very specific. It tells us precisely when the 490 years will start, and we know when they will end with the coming of the Messiah. So let's uh, kind of mark them out. I've highlighted in yellow there the first time marker, from, okay? In other words, at this point, we'll call this A, from A to B, it will be so many numbers of years. Well, what's A? It's the command to restore and build Jerusalem. That's when the clock's going to start ticking on this 490-year plan. That will call that A. So I'll come back to that in a second. But then in the next time marker is until Messiah the Prince comes. So that will call that B. So from A to B, or from when the command is issued to restore Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem was in ruins, um, and they, then uh, it's going, there's going to be a, the Persian king's going to issue a decree to, that they can restore it and start rebuilding it. And then you remember with Nehemiah and Ezra and all of the, the different returns and helping rebuild the wall. Uh, but from that decree until the Messiah comes will be what? Seven weeks, seven Shabuas, and 62 Shabuas. Okay? That's 69 seven-year periods. Now, there's been a lot of speculation as to why God in this prophecy separated the first 69 weeks into two references here, seven and 62. Um, 
we could we could speculate all day. The text is simply silent on it. But the point is, combined, they make up 69 seven-year periods. So if we kind of do the math again, seven seven-year periods and 62 seven-year periods equals 69 seven-year periods. All right, now, I don't want to get too down in the weeds, but let's kind of get out our calculator and see what he means by this 69 seven-year periods. We've got seven seven-year periods, that's 49 years. 62 seven-year periods, that's 40, 434 years. If you add that together, you get 483 years. So in other words, from A to B is going to be 483 years. From the, the command to restore Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince has come will be 483 years. Then let's look at the next time marker. Again, in the New King James, it says after after the 62, but remember the 62 was coupled with the 7, so 69 is what he's really saying there. Some things are going to happen. We'll call this C. Okay. C will be the Messiah is going to be cut off after he comes. And then the prince who is to come is going to destroy the city of Jerusalem. So again, if you're a Jew, you're thinking, wait a minute. We haven't gotten all the way to the end of the 490 years, and already you're telling me, the temple is going to be destroyed again? Well, yeah, that's right. And this correlates with that revived Roman Empire and that final satanic kingdom led by the Antichrist who you know, uh, rules like a tyrant over the whole world under the power of Satan. But we'll call that C. So from A to B is 483 years. Then after the 483rd year, some things are going to happen. Messiah is going to be cut off. And the city will, uh, will be destroyed and the sanctuary. Then, there's our fourth time marker. We'll call this D. Then, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So, one week, again, one Shabua, one seven-year period. One times seven is seven years. But that final week will lead up to the consummation. And then all things will be made new. So that's E. All right. So let's kind of put these out in a chart form just to make it easier. A was the command to restore Jerusalem. B, the Messiah comes. C, the Messiah is cut off and Jerusalem is destroyed. D, the Antichrist signs this covenant or this peace treaty. E is the consummation. The most holy one is anointed, like he said in verse 24. From A to B was 483 years. From D to E is seven years. Now what I want you to notice is C right there in the middle. The text of Daniel, we haven't even looked at the New Testament. If you have never even read the New Testament, it's plain as day from Daniel's prophecy itself that there is a gap of time between the first 483 years of this prophecy and the final seven. And in that gap of time, according to Daniel, a couple of things happen, at least. Messiah is crucified, and Jerusalem is destroyed. So when you come to the New Testament, as we shall see, God in his progress of revelation, over time giving more information, fills in additional information that's going to take place in this gap of time. 
So we're not forcing the church age on the text. Uh, there's nothing about the New Testament church age being a parenthesis or a gap uh, that is inconsistent with Daniel's prophecy. In fact, it fits perfectly with Daniel's prophecy. And we see this in many uh, cases in Old Testament prophecies where the prophets speak of the first and second advents of Christ as if they were one event, and yet we know they were separated by uh, multiple uh, years. So far, 2,000 years. Uh, we can think of Isaiah uh, 61, which uh, Jesus himself quotes in Luke chapter 4. Remember that? He goes at the beginning of his Galilean ministry, goes into the synagogue, and, uh, and they're reading from the scroll of Isaiah. He takes the scroll. He begins reading. He reads exactly from what we call Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and he stops mid-sentence, doesn't even complete the sentence from Isaiah's prophecy, puts down the scroll and says, today this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, where he stopped all related to the first advent. He, let, he didn't go on to talk about the day of vengeance of our God and the great day of the Lord's wrath and the rest of the part that's not going to happen, did, did not happen at Christ's first advent. We could think of Isaiah chapter 9, the famous Christmas passage that we often use, where unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, but his name shall be called, so forth and so on. Then it says, and the governments will be upon his shoulders, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. That didn't happen. Anybody disagree with the notion uh, or the observation that the governments are not under the authority of Christ today? <laughs> I mean... I'm not even sure our government's under the authority of Christ today. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not. But certainly the global governments are not under the authority of Christ today. So it's not at all uncommon for the prophets in the Old Testament, as Daniel does here, as God reveals through Daniel, to unveil the plan. But uh, what we, what's different about Daniel's prophecy is that he's, he attaches time markers to it. And again, Daniel is very clear that there's going to be 483 years after the 483rd year is over, Messiah is going to be cut off. Jerusalem will be destroyed. Then at some point after that, we'll know D has started, that final seven-year period, when the Antichrist signs the peace treaty. Since that hasn't happened yet, we know the seven years is yet future. Yeah? Were people not reading Daniel? Um, is that why they didn't know when Jesus was coming? You mean in the first century or... Yeah, I mean, because it yeah. seems like they would have kind of known. Like It wasn't like the, the rapture where they were wondering. It was more like, well, there goes Jerusalem, right? and let's go ahead and start counting the years. Yeah, they should have known, but there's several things at play here. First of all, the calendars were not uh, fully developed at that point. We didn't come up with the calendars until after the time of Christ, which is the reason why they're off a little bit. You know, Jesus was born in the winter of 5-4 B.C., sometime between December and April, December of 5 B.C., April of 4 B.C. But when they went back and reckoned time, of course, they did it B.C. and A.D. Now it's called B.C.E. and C.E., which just frustrates me, but anyway. <laughs> um, but it was B.C. and A.D. before Christ in the year of our Lord. And so they, they intended for sort of the, the dividing line between the B.C. dates where you count down and then you start the first year to be the birth of Christ. Well, they were off. And we know that for a fact because we know Herod was still living when Jesus was born. And we know historically Herod died in April of 4 B.C. So Jesus had to be born before 
4 BC, and um, the best scholars have been able to formulate it, at, as we're going to see in a moment, at the winter sometime between uh, December, roughly, and, say, March. Um, Herod was losing his mind. He was going, you know, you know nuts, and he, um, that's the reason he issued that decree to kill all the babies and so forth and so on. Now, some people say Christ could have been born even a couple of years earlier than that, because because of Herod's decree, why would he make it two years and younger if Jesus was still an infant? Um, and I'm okay with that. It doesn't change the anything except that it makes Jesus even older when he died. But we know he was at least 37 when he died, right? Not 33. He died in 33. That's the reason, you know, a lot of people think he was 33 years old, right? 33 A.D., 33 in the year of our Lord. He must have been 33 when he died. No, he was actually 37. I remember, uh, who was that comedian, Christian comedian, used to talk about, used to use that laugh line, um, I always thought I would, he was single and, and older, and he said, I always thought I'd get married by the time I was 33, because that's when Jesus laid down his life, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but he wasn't married at 33, <laughs> he was married at 37, but it could have been 38, 39, or I mean, he died at 37, um, could have been 38, 39, but it certainly could not have been any later than 4 B.C. because Herod was still living. So, good question. But as far as why they didn't know, yeah, absolutely. They should have known. So one thing was the calendar wasn't that well developed. But secondly, uh, they were deceived. And, and we've talked about this a lot. They, this was all part of God's plan. It's not like God didn't see this coming. He predicted that the stone that they rejected would become a stumbling stone. We know that prophetically they would crown him with thorns first and then a king's crown later. But humanly speaking, from our perspective of time, space, and matter, we look back and think, man, of course they should know but or should have known. I mean, how many babies were born of a virgin in Bethlehem, right? But... Um, but the same thing's going to happen, by the way, in relation to the second coming during the tribulation, which is why Jesus so passionately and repeatedly in the Olivet Discourse <clears throat> reminds them or cautions them, don't be deceived. Because even then it should be even easier. You know once the Antichrist signs that peace treaty, it's seven years. He's coming back seven years later. That's what Daniel's prophecy says. So... It should be even more obvious then, and yet there will still be many Jews who take the mark of the beast and refuse um, to believe the gospel. So, uh, But let me chart this out for you. I think this will help uh, understanding why we say that this prophecy is the key to understanding God's plan of the ages. So uh, we said that from A to B is 69 weeks, which we said is 483 years. Now A was the, the decree. Well, we happen to know precisely when that decree occurred. It was the decree of Artaxerxes. It's actually referenced in the Bible in Nehemiah chapter 2. But we know historically from extra-biblical documents that it occurred March 5th, 444 B.C. And he says, until Messiah has come. That's B. Well, uh, let's put this in terms of days. 483 years a Jewish calendar year had 360 days in it. So you do the math, 483 times 360, you come up with 173,880 days. Now, if you start counting, remember, you can't go by calendar dates. You have to, you know, you have to count it out, right? Because some uh, years have different uh, 
lunar and solar cycles and things like that. So if you count from March 5th, 444 BC, and you start counting 173,880 days later, guess where you land? You land at the precise date of the triumphal entry of our Lord, March 30th, 33 AD, as recorded in the Gospels. So just like Daniel said, from the, the decree being issued, 483 years later, Messiah is going to come. And that correlates with his triumphal entry. You know, uh, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The, the, you know, his official coming in to establish the kingdom. Now, we know that after that, just as Daniel said, in fact, four days later, he was crucified. But we'll come back to that in a second. So, but I want to put the dates here, uh, nail it down a little bit more so, <clears throat> so you know I'm not just making this stuff up. So let's go back to the final weeks of Christ's life on earth, from Passion Week all the way to the Ascension, 50 days later. <clears throat> so he arrives at Bethany on Saturday, March 28th, 33 A.D. This is all 33 A.D. By the way, uh, <clears throat> this comes from uh, uh, Harold Honer. Did you have him? What did you think of him? He was a smart guy, but how'd you do in his class? Okay. Yeah, I, you're a lot smarter than me. I, I barely got by. It was the lowest grade I made throughout my time at Dallas Seminary was from Harold Honer. So, uh, and I think even that was grace. He was tough, but he is the preeminent scholar on redating the, the apostolic age. Uh, in fact, he did his dissertation on that. He's got a book out about it. He's with the Lord now. He died 10 years ago, maybe, but... Um, Anyway, great man of God. So this is kind of coming from one of the preeminent scholars. But uh, So he arrives at Bethany, if you remember, outside Jerusalem. Then the triumphal entry actually happened on Monday. We celebrated on Sunday, but historically it occurred on Monday, March 30th. And I might mention as a side note, March 30th also happens to be my birthday. So yet another triumphal entry, I guess. I don't know. Uh, for what that's worth, you can draw any parallels that... Uh, seem appropriate or not. Um, so then on Tuesday is when he has the confrontation in the temple. Remember when he overturned the tables of the money changers and he curses the fig tree? Then by Wednesday, he's giving the Olivet Discourse, okay, which is that lengthy sermon in answer to the question, what will be the sign of your coming? When are you going to come? By, ne by then he's already, uh, again, cursed the temple or cleanse the temple. He's already said not one stone will be left upon another. Uh, the disciples are getting nervous. How can the kingdom uh, that you just entered Jerusalem to inaugurate happen if the temple is going to be destroyed and not one stone is going to be left upon the other? Well, he answers that question by talking about the 70th week of Daniel. He quotes Daniel by name. He refers back to the abomination of desolation. And again, you're right. They should have known if they read Daniel's prophecy carefully, that after he arrived, the king arrived in Jerusalem, he was going to be cut off and the temple destroyed before he comes back later and the consummation of all things. But they didn't connect the dots the way we now can. So then on Thursday, he has the upper room time, the intimate time with the disciples. He washes their feet. He institutes the Passover. That's Thursday, April 2nd. And then he goes to the garden where he's betrayed and very hastily arrested, uh, tried, and then by Friday he's laid in the tomb early in the morning on Friday, April 3rd. 
Then he's in the tomb from Friday through Sunday. Now, this is also something that has confused a lot of people through the years. And maybe you've come across this in your own studies. But uh, the phrase, three days and three nights. Now, I've put a handout at the back. Uh, it's double-sided that I put together called Three Days and Three Nights, explaining that Hebrew idiom. And three days and three nights does not mean three days and three nights like we think it does, meaning 72 hours. It's a Hebrew idiom that means any part of a day and any part of a night constitutes the whole day, right? So I've explained that in here if you're interested in that, but it perfectly accords with Scripture that he was laid in the tomb on Friday. By Sunday morning, he was resurrected. That's a Friday, a Saturday, and a Sunday, three days, three nights, according to the Hebrew language. Again, it's confusing in English because we think, well, he wasn't there 72 hours, and that's why you have some people saying, well, he must have died on Wednesday. So how else could you be in the tomb 72 hours and so forth and so on? That's completely unnecessary, and it's just a misunderstanding. Remember, the Bible wasn't written in English. The Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek and a little bit in Aramaic. So we have to understand the biblical terms using biblical definitions. So he's in the tomb Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Of course, he resurrected on Sunday, April the 5th, 33 A.D. Then he appears for 40 days to a variety of audiences from April 5th to May 14th, gives the Great Commission sometime in May, and then he ascends at the Mount of Ascension, Acts chapter 1, on May the 14th, and then 10 days later, on the day of Pentecost, the church is founded as Peter preaches his famous sermon, and uh, the 3,000 souls are saved. So <clears throat> what we're talking about here with Daniel's prophecy is the triumphal entry. And it occurred 173,880 days to the day exactly after the decree of Artaxerxes to restore and rebuild the temple. So that was from A to B. But then we remember we said C was after those things, some things were going to happen. The Messiah was going to be cut off and the city was going to be destroyed. Indeed, that's exactly what happened in on April uh, 3rd, 33 A.D., as we said, he was crucified just three days later, four days later, Monday to Thursday, or Friday, rather. And then, uh, and then by 70 A.D., so some 40 years later, the temple is destroyed when the Roman general Titus rode into Jerusalem, burned at the city, just like Daniel said was going to happen. And just, by the way, like Jesus said was going to happen when he said... Uh, in Matthew 23, that not one stone will be left upon another. And then we came to D in our list, which was then, that is, following these events, at some point in the future, there's going to be a final seven-year period signaled by the signing of the peace treaty. Okay. Now, everything in blue that you see up there relates to the 490-year plan. What's in green is stuff that happens outside of the 490-year plan, between the 483rd year and the start of the 484th year. You with me? That's why I color-coded them that way. So you come to the New Testament, and the New Testament comes along, and we see that it adds information to this gap of time between the 69th week and the start of the 70th week. Uh, what can you think of that the, the New Testament reveals by the inspiration of the Spirit? that occurs in this gap of time in addition to what Daniel already said was going to happen. Can you think of anything? Rapture? Well, the rapture is going to happen 
in there, that's right. But who does the rapture affect? The church. The church, exactly. So the whole church age. You remember when we talked about the church age being a mystery, something unrevealed in the Old Testament? Yet the Old Testament clearly allows for it. It's not something that changes anything in the Old Testament. It just gives more information. And so this is why for many years, uh, people who read the Bible in its literal, grammatical, historical context, in its plain, normal sense, refer to the church age as a parenthesis. Now our covenant theologian friends and amillennialists can't stand that phrase because they, they think it makes it sound like the church was an afterthought or something. No, not at all. It's, a, it's an analogy. It happens to be a grammatical analogy. When you read a sentence and you come to a parenthesis, you know that the stuff in there isn't immediately relevant to the flow of thought, but it's still part of the sentence. It's still important. It's still worthy of being included in the sentence. And that's, it's just a grammatical analogy. And it makes sense, because according to Daniel, this church age that the New Testament reveals is going to occur between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel. So we don't know when this final seven week is going to happen yet. The New Testament gives us more information about that. It, we, the New Testament reveals the rapture, which is also called a mystery in 1 Corinthians 15, something previously unrevealed. And once the rapture happens, that you might, you might say the rapture is that right-hand parenthesis mark there, because that puts an end to the church age, and then sometime after that is when the Antichrist is going to be unveiled. He's going to sign the peace treaty with Israel. And, uh, and that's going to start the clock ticking on the final seven years. So does that make sense? Hopefully that's clear as mud. But the question again is, after 2,000 years of waiting, can God be trusted? If the first 483 years were fulfilled in history precisely to the day that God's word said they would be, why should we have any doubt that the final seven years will be fulfilled literally in a seven-year period? So when you hear folks telling you that the seven years tribulation already happened in the past, that it was symbolic, that it was metaphorical, that it's not literal, have them explain how come the first 483 years of this 490-year prophecy were literal, but the final seven somehow makes no sense. They do the same thing with the prophecies related to Christ's first and second advents. They take the first advent prophecies literally because they have no choice. He was literally born in Bethlehem. He was literally born of a virgin, so on and so forth. But for some reason, the prophecies related to a second coming, they just say, oh, no, no, they are not literal. He's not literally going to come on you know, the Mount uh, of Olives, and he's not literally going to come back to earth. He's not literally going to set up an earthly kingdom. The temple dimensions in Ezekiel are just metaphorical. So they change their hermeneutic, that's called, without justification. And it leads to some bad interpretation. So uh, any questions as we kind of wrap up here? Daniel's 70 weeks. Yeah. Do some people have a problem with uh, the coming of the Messiah not being his birth? Does that throw people off at all or not? No, they, I'm just saying they, they acknowledge that the prophecies related to his birth were fulfilled literally. Right, I get that. I'm just okay. saying sometimes when you... When, when you first at first read, it might seem like, well, he's going to come, he's going to appear on the day he's born. But I guess you know, it could be either one because he didn't officially get recognized until that. Yeah, day. no, I mean, all we could do is go by Daniel's prophecy, and I just think it's it's remarkable that it, it that it coincides precisely with uh, his consummation. Daniel doesn't say he's it's going to. 
be 483 years till he's born. Till his birth, right. He says till the consummation, right? Or 490 years till the consummation, right? And then 483 years till Messiah, the prince. Well, that's what he was. He was Messiah riding into Jerusalem in fulfillment of prophecy on the back of a donkey. The royal aspect of it. Yeah, that makes yeah, sense. yeah, exactly. How did the Jews deal with this? They just ignore it. Yeah, they uh, they the unbelieving Jews, of course, re deal with it the same way the first century Jews did. They reject him. They don't believe he was the Messiah. That he doesn't fit their preconceived notion, uh, even though he should. He fulfills the prophecies, but they they do the same thing people do with the Bible today. That don't like what it says. Uh, you see, the problem is when. The Bible disagrees with our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. We're the one that is supposed to change. But what people tend to do is change the Bible. So if you're a Bible-believing Christian, but you think homosexuality is okay, then you twist all those passages, right? And you, you can make the Bible say whatever it wants to say. That's why it comes down to hermeneutics. Plain, normal, literal sense. We don't have the freedom to make it say whatever we want. It says what it says. When the quill hit the sheepskin... God, the creator of the universe, intended to communicate something concrete and, and not uh, nebulous or not multiple meanings. What does it mean? That's the way language works. We wouldn't be able to be even having this lecture if we didn't use language that way. If you got to sit back there and say, well, let me, let me make up what I think he means, you know, then, then no, meaning resides with the author or the speaker and in Scripture with the words on the page. So, I think they just were deceived, and they uh, he didn't fit their notion, so they either ignored it or twisted it. Yeah, back in the back, and then we'll come up to you. Yeah. So are the Jews now waiting for a political Messiah, or are they? Is that why they will be deceived by the Antichrist? Yeah, they're still waiting for a Messiah, uh, and and many of them will still be deceived, but many won't. Uh, the nation as a whole, in fulfillment of Scripture, is going to receive their Messiah the second time around. They're going to first believe the gospel individually, and then nationally they will call on the name of the Lord and be delivered into the kingdom, Joel 2. So, but yeah, I think the same thing is going to happen the next time with many Jews. Uh, and indeed, many people throughout the world, not just the Jews, but Jesus said, Be not deceived, be not deceived, be not deceived. Many will come in my name. And claim to be the Christ, and, and, and many Jews will fall prey to Satan's greatest deception ever. I mean, deception's getting worse and worse. We've talked a lot about that in, in Spirit of the Antichrist, the gathering cloud of deception, but it's going to reach a climax during that final seven-year period, which is the reason Jesus four or five times cautions in, in that Olivet Discourse against being deceived in that time. Uh, so yeah, I think it's the same thing, you know, part two, that their preconceived idea of what they think the Messiah is going to be, it wasn't met, so they, they miss him. But they'll miss him at great peril, you know, just like they did the first time. Those Jews who rejected the Messiah and didn't believe the gospel are in hell today, just like anybody else who dies without Jesus. If you, you know, God doesn't force you to believe. It's a free gift. He offers it freely to all, and come one, come all. But if you don't receive it by faith, then you're going to end up paying for your sins for all of eternity. Yeah. The everyday average Jew at this time didn't have this at their fingertips. Right. I mean, the only people that had the Word of God were the priests, right? Right. And so that's the a great only time point. People would have even heard this would be during their Sabbath. Yeah. 
and of course, you know, how much do you retain and how much, and there was a lot to cover, so. Well, so that's a very good point. That goes back to what Jeff was saying, but with one clarification. Remember, the Hebrew uh, scriptures were largely an oral tradition, and you're right, the, the scribes and, and the, the leaders, they had a copy that they would read from in the assembly, but uh, even though the common people didn't have, everyone didn't have a, a Bible or a scroll in their back pocket, they still knew a lot of the scriptures because they had committed it to memory. So they still were without excuse. They still should have known. But you bring up a great point, and that is that the, the rabbis were heavily influencing the Jewish people of their day, which is the reason the first major sermon that Matthew records Jesus preaching, which is the Sermon on the Mount, is essentially a, a, a hard-nosed, in-your-face target at the Pharisees and scribes in, within the hearing of all those sitting on the hillside that day because he wanted to sort of make a point. And, uh, and you can t tell by the end of it, when you get to the end of chapter 7, that the scribes and Pharisees didn't appreciate it very much because Matthew tells us that. So, uh, so yeah, there was uh, more to it culturally than just, well, they had the book of Isaiah, they had the book of Daniel, why didn't they know? Well, there was a lot of things at play, but nevertheless, they should have known. Yeah? And even those 12 disciples and the 70 and those who were close followers of the Lord for those three years, coming right up to the end, he told them very plainly three times, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified, I'll be raised from the dead. And still, it went right over their head. Exactly. That's another and great point. So, I mean, that helps us to understand maybe why there was an obtuseness to... Yeah. Yeah, that's another great point. Did everybody catch that? That the disciples themselves also didn't get it. They had the same scriptures, and then they had the benefit of being with the Lord for three and a half years, sitting under His teaching, and yet they still didn't get it. They, that's why they were confused on Wednesday of thinking, wait a minute, thought you are going to throw off the shackles of Rome and usher in the kingdom right now. And Jesus, you almost sense a, bit, a note of frustration with him when he says, look, why are you so obsessed with this temple? Not one stone's going to be left upon another. You know, and then he begins to explain Daniel's prophecy to them. So we're all subject to uh, misunderstanding and, and, and seeing Scripture the way we want to see it. And it's a note of caution to all of us to let Scripture speak, to trust the Lord, to be patient, and recognize that God, in fact, can be trusted. Did you have a question? Nope? Great. All right, well, that we're, we're over time, so thanks for letting me borrow a, a few extra minutes here. And uh, we will see you in about uh, 10 minutes for worship.